0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit audio bandwidth for security now is provided by aol music and spinner.com where you can get free mp3s exclusive interviews and more video bandwidth for security now is provided by cashfly at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 241, for March twenty fifth, 2010, Hardware Interrupts. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite, the leader in online backup. Backup your PC or Mac off-site securely and automatically. For a free trial offer plus two free months with purchase, go to carbonite.com, offer code TWIT. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all the important things about keeping yourself safe online, protecting your privacy, avoiding spyware and viruses. And lately, uh, it's also been a great show for how computers work. And that's thanks to this guy, Steve Gibson, one of the pioneers of, uh, of technology. Guy's been around a long time. He wrote Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance utility. Uh, just knows the ins and outs of all this stuff. Uh, even likes to write assembly language code. For the PDP eight.
1: <laughs> Hi, Steve. <laughs> hey, Leo. And remember, I'm old. And he's old. I'm old. In fact, it's funny the the the, the guy that blogged that um, where he said, you know, Steve Gibson is an old man, old and
0: weird. I think he said. Well,
1: he no, uh, what was the? There was a term later on in, in that uh, posting, uh, but some, but it was all positive. Kooky. Kooky. Kooky, That's Kooky it. was the word he used. I well, I haven't heard that for a while. Not about myself, but just in general. But he he did send back some email because I'm sure he and other friends listened to the podcast and said, hey, that you know they're 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 talking about you. Well, he, remember that he was CNET China, I think was where he was, and he explained. He said, in Chinese culture, old is revered. Yes, it's not the same as. You know, old and oh, look—you're old and wrinkly on the California beach. It's very different in China. So not, I said, oh, "Oh, okay, I like not that." Not
0: typically so in uh, in technology, but I think that uh, he had a lot to he a lot of good points to make about how knowing about this how how it's been and and all that stuff is very valuable, very useful. Well, it works for us here. And today we're going to cover something uh, along those lines. We're going to talk about uh, we're going to continue building a computer from first principles, right?
1: Yes, and uh, I continue getting great feedback from people who are really enjoying this. I mean, we're still covering lots of good weekly security news. But my goal is, in this computer series, is, to, is, is one of demystification. Rather than people just sort of like, oh, well, you know, I turn it on and it lights up. It's like, okay, no excuses, nothing hidden. Let's look at exactly how this stuff works and if we take it in the right sequence and build from from one week to the next on what we've got before, I'm as I promised at the beginning of this, I am sure people can end up feeling, wait a minute, that's it? That's all there is? And yeah. it's like, yes, this really is simple it is. It's really simple. It just does it very fast. So you get complex results. But right. but the actual little things it's doing are completely understandable. We're going to get to that in
0: just a little bit. But first, uh, let's see what's going on in the world of security and so forth.
1: Interesting little story with Firefox. Um, I noticed since we've last spoken a week ago that Firefox, the current version train that everyone should be on is the 3.6 train. And it went recently to 3.6.2. Now, I got a call from my tech support guy, Greg, he and I were chatting like maybe a week ago, and he said, "Hey, um, have you upgraded to 3.6?" I said, "Yeah," and he said, uh, "My scrolling broke," and he's using he's using the mouse which I've spoken of and recommended several times, the Logitech uh, Anywhere MX mouse with that uh, inertia scrolling where you just sort of spin the wheel and and you get to scroll. And when you combine that with Catmouse, K-A-T-M-O-U-S-E, which is a little free software um, which automatically sends the scrolling to whatever window you're hovering over without you having to click in the window in order to activate that window to make it the current window. It's just, it's so wonderful. And uh, what he was complaining of was that 3.6, he upgraded from 3.5 to 3.6. And that broke. And so I thought, oh, well, no, it's working for me. And uh, so he went back to 3.5, and then it worked. And then later last week, I tried upgrading one of my laptops from 3.5 to 3.6, and it broke. So I had duplicated Greg's experience. Anyway, when I saw that Firefox... So I I left myself at at 3.5 on my main machine... And when I saw that Firefox had gone to 3.6.2, I thought, well, I'll just, I wonder what they fixed. Well, they fixed a heap overflow corruption problem. There was a security concern, which was the main impetus for this. But they also talked about multiple stability fixes. So I went into the detailed changes at 3.6.2. And in there was a bug number 540510 that said, quote, Scrolling messages forwarded back from a plugin are dropped instead of processed. It's like, oh, please, this, could this be it? So I was able to, on the, prior to upgrading, I was able to duplicate the problem. And I noted, for example, that when, if I happened to be scrolling, if the mouse was hovering over a, an object on the page, like a flash object or, or something that was fancy the the page wouldn't scroll. If I deliberately moved the mouse out of that, then it would scroll again. So it was exactly what the symptomology was, which was scrolling messages were getting lost. I upgraded to three point six point two, and that problem was fixed. So, huh? Uh, Isn't that anyways. interesting? Yeah. Now
0: that's from the heap overflow or no
1: no they called it a regression problem. So it was something it was a bug they introduced inadvertently at Ah. some point along the way. What is regression
0: what is a regression error? What does that mean?
1: Well the idea is that that while you're fixing things, you change something that sort of brings back a problem that you had fixed previously. And so regression uh-huh. testing you, reg- you regress regress to a previous bad state. You, exactly. You Got regress it. one aspect, some something that was fixed at one point comes back again. Right. And so one of the things that that you know like major companies like Microsoft will do is they'll deliberately create a a a forward moving test suite that tests to make sure that everything that they had fixed before stays fixed, and that's what's called regression testing, to make sure that you haven't reintroduced a problem that you'd fixed before. So, I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons this stuff is sort of slow to, to get done, is that they're not just jumping in and going, oh, there's the problem, and, you know, right. change an ampersand to a circumflex or something, you know, like, oh, we had the wrong character that we typed there. They also want to make sure that they test, they, they, they add to their test suite, A check to make sure that this behavior never comes back for for any reason, right? So, so you know that's
0: uh, isn't that though? Doesn't that kind of come from poor programming practice? If stuff is so tightly coupled that a change in one place uh, changes things, I mean, I know it's unavoidable because you know we're maintaining lots of code written by lots of different people. But ideally, in a program, you shouldn't have these kinds of interactions.
1: Uh, ideally, uh, Leo. Uh, am I showing my naivete? Yeah. Ideally, this podcast would not exist. Okay, I see what you're ideally, saying. Ideally, <laughs> we wouldn't need to be right. talking about this. <laughs> However, yeah, we live and in, in, in fact, the real world. Down in my little errata section, I want to. I'm going to talk a little bit about about sort of is it time to rethink all of this? I mean, oh, this is okay. just getting so ridiculous. Okay. So, also, I'm sure you're aware, and I just wanted to. Uh, cover it briefly in in our podcast the updates with Google's uh, trials and tribulations relative to China and and what they've decided to do recently. Since we last talked, Google did follow through with their with their statement from January twelfth that they were going to stop censoring the results from their Google.cn search engine. And the way they did it and maybe you can clarify this for me because I was confused by this. I know you've been following it more closely than I have. They did it by redirecting the Google.cn traffic to Google.com.hk. Right. That is to their, their Hong Kong domain. Um, since then, China has blocked that. But in the Google blog, they they said, quote, Figuring out how to make good on our promise to stop censoring search on Google.cn has been hard. We want as many people in the world as possible to have access to our services, including users in mainland China. Yet the Chinese government has been crystal clear throughout our discussions that self-censorship is a non-negotiable legal requirement. We believe this new approach to providing uncensored search in simplified Chinese from google.com.hk is a sensible solution to the challenges we've faced. It's entirely legal and will meaningfully increase access to information for people in China. Unless it's blocked
0: by the Chinese government. As I said,
1: we very much hope the Chinese government respects our decision, though we are well aware that it could at any time block access to our services. Right. So... Uh, do you do you understand what they're talking about? How them simply bouncing people to .dot com .dot hk instead of .dot cn was was legal or wasn't breaking the spirit of what the Chinese government wanted them to do? I
0: think their position is that um, you're going to a website outside of mainland China. Now, oddly enough, Hong Kong is owned by mainland China, so this is why I'm not sure. Let's say that's a that's an area I don't get. But let's say they moved it to the U.S that you got redirected to google.com well the chinese government can't assert what google.com does so all that remains to the chinese government is to block sites outside wow. of china
1: okay. now as they do with their as they with do their, with twitter big and firewall. facebook
0: and yep. uh, and uh, many google properties oh, including YouTube. blogger and and yeah and youtube yeah. so but the thing that puzzles me is hong kong is in fact maybe it's maybe it's in a different legal status it is a You know, I mean, it's run differently than mainland China, but it is, in fact, owned by, I mean, you know, it reverted to the Chinese government. I guess they have two different systems, and maybe the laws are somewhat different, and Hong Kong has some autonomy. Obviously, that's the case. So they're just saying, look, we're going to continue to operate normally. If the Chinese government doesn't want
1: the Chinese people to see it, they're going to have to filter,
0: not us. And I I think that's the right thing to do, by the way.
1: Yeah. There is an interesting page that I wanted to point our users to, any users who are interested about this. Um, It's google.com slash prc, obviously as in People's Republic of China, slash report.html. Again, it's www.google.com slash prc slash report.html, which Google is now maintaining day by day, showing of all the different sorts of content relating to Google, which of that content The the Chinese are currently blocking to people inside of China. And so right right now it shows three days worth of different stuff. For example, YouTube has got red X's through it for all three days. But lots of things are still open and some are sort of like blogs or I I think had like a yellow wrench on it. So those are like partially, partially The Chinese government
0: asserted that they could selectively filter Google search results. and I don't know how they would do that, but they said they can do that. They do it right yep. now with CNN. You know, if you're watching CNN in China, it goes along perfectly normally. And if they do, when I was there, they, the Uyghurs were revolting uh, in the uh, uh, remote regions of China. Those and darn Uyghurs. Those darn Uyghurs. And so when the CNN did a story on it, it just would go black. You'd be watching CNN, go black for a minute or two, and come back.
1: They just <laughs> um, chop it out. They're doing three things. They're... They're doing uh, DNS games, so they're able to to essentially um, change DNS results on the fly. They also have IP-based blocking, so they can block out whole network ranges um, from f- from access from um, inside China. And they are doing deep packet inspection. They've got per-packet filters that are looking for keywords and phrases. In packets, and if a, one of those filters trips, it propagates the IP, the, the remote IP, out through their network, so that that IP is blocked for some length of time, on the order of 30 minutes, so that it just sort of quickly catches any attempt to move content that they deem um, inappropriate, and 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 so you'll 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 get connection um, dropped. Uh, responses inside of your browser all the time, where it just, you know, there was a connection and then it just got broken, just summarily broken. Hmm. So, there you go. Um, some interesting changes, and we'll come back to China in a second. Um, uh, Russia has decided that they're going to um, tighten down, and I think this is sounds like a good thing. Because Russian domains are such a problem, they're going to require for the first time some proof of identity from people who register .ru, that is in the the Russian top-level domain, domain names. Um, Computer World had a nice story reporting that individuals will soon be, and I think even now, are being required to provide a passport and businesses must provide their legal registration papers. Um, No, actually, I think currently none is required and historically none has been required, but they are they have announced they're going to start doing that soon. Um, China made a similar announcement that I'll talk about in more detail in a second, about a month ago. But what what the security watchers are seeing is that people are simply, you know, just moving their bad stuff. You know, China or or Russia has been notorious for being a source of scamming and spamming and all kinds of mischief in .ru domains. Uh, The problem is that as Russia tightens down on this, there are still plenty of other top-level domains, and specifically Vietnam, which is .vn, and Indonesia, which is .id, um, they're beginning to become more popular havens for all the kind of stuff that we really wish the Internet was not hosting for us. Um, and another interesting little bit of news um, the uh, on behalf of ICANN, uh, the University of Chicago did a study uh, audited the the domain registrar registrar records for a huge number of domain names, and determined that more than three quarters of internet domains which are registered have incomplete invalid or completely false names and information. Just, you know, more than three quarters. Um, and in fact, 22% of website owners they found were impossible to trace. Now, I look at this as like, okay, well, that's too bad, except that, you know, this notion of registering a domain anonymously is a long-standing tradition on the Internet. There was, you know, there was this notion that one of the things you could get with the Internet was Anonymity and privacy. And if you were in a situation where, for whatever reason, you felt you had a message that you wanted to, to make available publicly, um, anonymity and privacy were some things that the Internet brought along. The problem, of course, is with that being a, it's a double-edged sword. And so then there, that brings with it security and safety problems. Right. It's, a, it's an interesting tension between
0: privacy yes. and um and anonymity, and then the fact that people, when they're forced to use their real names, act nicer. They don't send spam. They,
1: you know. Yes.
0: So I don't know what the answer is. It's a tough one.
1: Well, in fact, China, a month ago, decided that they're going to get really serious about this. Um, From now on, and this policy is now in place, China will require a face-to-face meeting with a, with anyone wanting to register a domain, wow. in, during which a photograph will be taken of the registrant wow. and the other personal details confirmed. Um, after this policy went in place, uh, state-owned Ch- Chinese uh, state-owned network operators have so far, just in the last couple of weeks, closed 130,000 sites that did not have um, official. Uh, confirmed records, um, uh, and China has said that any existing sites, any existing domains that do not have officialized records by the end of September will be closed. So they're really trying to clamp down, you know, they say that they they want to deal with the problem of pornography um, within China and that this is their approach for it. And then they always use
0: pornography as their excuse, but really it's dissent. We know it's a lot of political
1: dissent. Exactly. Um, And then even more chilling, the head of Chinese of Chinese uh, IT ministry uh, said that they are continuing to research what they call a real name system for the internet, which would require users to register Chinese users to register their real identities. Before using public online message boards and so forth, yeah. So basically, stopping out anonymity within, you know, to the degree that they have the control to do so, yeah. So that's a huge, and that, huge, and
0: that underscores the problem where, yeah, anonymity can be is is valuable in some cases for dissent, for whistleblowing, um, and and of course, a repressive government doesn't want anonymity, even though that yeah. causes problems on the internet, yeah.
1: So there's so many little a myriad of other problems, for example, that are that are happening all the time continuously. Um I scroll through them just the these endless lists every week and I think, okay, well these are all so obscure that they that they, they, they I'm not gonna go into them because it'll annoy most of our population of listeners because it doesn't affect them. But I just as I was looking through this list this morning, just sort of shaking my head, that we're, that you know, and it refers back to what you were saying earlier, Leo, about like you know problems popping back up that we'd stomped out before this whole regression issue. I just sort of thought, you know, I hope somewhere someone is, and it's really got to be a big someone like an Apple or a or a Microsoft or maybe Linux guys are are. Standing back and saying, you know, we're losing this race. A- and arguably we are losing this race. The The number of problems that are newly found. You know, the AV companies who are looking for new, newly created viruses. I mean, th- they're in the tens and hundreds of thousands. And and we're seeing the problem of the, the, the signatures not being updated quickly enough. And uh, just this constant flux of exploitation and you, you have to think okay wait a minute the problem I mean we understand where this came from because all of us have been around long enough to have seen machines that were initially not on the internet but, but even then had problems with floppies getting infected so it's not like the internet was the cause of this but it's it 's the the architecture the fundamental design of our machines are not secure. I mean the fundamental architecture the design evolved from a time when there was absolutely no and i mean no concern about security, which is difficult for probably our younger listeners to even imagine but there was n- once upon a time no concern for security it just wasn't it wasn't on the map at all and it it it, be- it began of course in the mainframe era where you started to have multi-user systems where where it said okay well we need some sort of authentication at a terminal for someone who needs access to records because we don't want to leave our record systems open to everyone and we need some audit trails and some accountability. So that, that sort of that notion of of some concern for security began to happen. And then of course the internet sort of grew organically from a an experiment in gee, could this notion of autonomous packet routing Work on a, you know, be a scalable solution so that we're able to connect things. And I remember when I first, you know, began hearing about this notion of a a global network. It's like, okay, well, that that's ridiculous. You know, you're not going to have that. Well, <laughs> whoops, you know, we do. And then there was the problem of the chicken egg, where it was like, well, who's going to put their computers on the internet because? There's there, you know, there is really nothing there or who's going to bother to put content on because there's <laughs> no users. Remember, remember that? That yeah. The whole discussion. Yeah. And it, again, it just sort of organically happened. It just it, it, it did happen. And then then Microsoft got, cla- got caught flat footed because they were going to go off and do MSN, the Microsoft network, to compete with the source and CompuServe and the other and AOL, the other sort of dial up BBSs. And then when the net happened, Microsoft said, oh, gee, I guess we're not all going to be using big modem pools and having people dial in all the time. And they didn't have a a networkable operating system, really. So they just sort of stuck Windows on the Internet. And, you know, I came along and realized that they'd also stuck everybody's C drive on the Internet. (laughs) Yes. It's like, oops, gee, we hadn't really thought about that being a problem. And so, of course, I created shields up in order to alert people to the fact and make it easy to check back in those days whether your your machine was visible on the net or not and, and to what degree. So, so, now, of course, malware and viruses has what it would dream of having, which is universal connectivity so that it can get up to mischief. But all the way through this, there's never been a reset. There's never been an opportunity or a moment or, or I mean, any place where, where people said, okay, wait a minute. This is not going to get fixed until we get serious about completely rethinking the way our systems work. And you know we've watched Microsoft on this show over the last five years moving moving toward more secure things, more secure policies, more secure practices, you know, introducing technologies which thwart this. but it, it's it's no really it's not that different than the the perennial. Spy versus spy, you know, good guys versus bad guys problem where we're trying to stay a step ahead. And there always seems to be a a rich flux of new problems that, you know, that the good guys are introducing inadvertently into systems that bad guys can exploit. And what we need, I, guess, I mean, I'm just I just sort of hit this. Frustration this morning, looking at all the problems and thinking about it, it's like we we need a reset. I mean, we need a, a if we had a fundamental, a fundamental rethink of the way our systems operate such that, we would have containment i mean uh, there're like little scratches around the fringe of this notion we've talked about sandboxing and virtual machines and you know freezing the state of a machine so that when you reboot it it you know like so that it's it doesn't changes you make are not persistent there are various ways of, of, of doing that and and we we need a fundamentally robust structure rather than a fundamentally vulnerable structure. We have today a fundamentally vulnerable structure. And if there's one thing our listeners know from, from sort of through osmosis, picking up the philosophy of security that you and I talk about endlessly every week, Leo, it's this notion of the weak link. I mean, in order for security to be in our current model, Every single piece of every link in the chain has to be perfect. One mistake in one link of the chain creates a vulnerability. So with our current model where everything has to be correct, I mean, we're at a huge, we the white hats are at a huge disadvantage because the systems are ungodly complex. I mean, just... Phenomenally complicated, and and pieces are coming from every different direction. It's you know, um, Apple has traditionally had a little bit of an advantage because they produced the hardware. They sort of you know controlled a much more um, homogeneous platform, where Windows was always a much more heterogeneous sort of environment. Um, Arguably, that that's changing a little bit over time, but. Anyway, I just I, I, I look at this and I think this is not something we're gonna win. If with if we continue down this road we're not gonna win. And yeah. and I don't there's there is you can't we keep catching things. We keep, you know, putting layers of fixes I, I was just hearing uh, uh, the other day that there are now ways around address space layout randomization and now ways around depth, data execution prevention, those new technologies that were meant to, like, solve the problem. Well, they, they All they did, they were more patches. They were more, oh, look, let's scramble this up and make it a little more difficult. Well, all it does is, it—it it, sure, for a while it makes it more difficult until the bad guys sit down and scratch their heads and say, oh, this is just another challenge for us one that we can beat and and anyway it's just it's 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 so clear that we're not winning you know we're not and and i don't see how it can change there was an article i read which as would i ended up not adding to the the top of the show stories about uh a uh a huge um uh, mm. problem uh somewhere in canada now in calgary uh, a, a medical facility that found a Trojan inside of one of the machines that was a remote-controlled tro- Trojan. And the machine had uh, um, personal private uh, scan results and medical records. They were forced to send out 4,700 pieces of email to their patients saying it may, it may be that your that your records have been you know, got out of our control and are now available to bad guys on the Internet. And there was a quote later in this article where where one of the executives, and this is not the first time they'd had problems, and the one of the executives said, yeah, um, every so often those guys find a way into our, you know, through our firewall. Yeah,
0: every once in a while.
1: And I'm thinking, <laughs> no, they don't. You know, every so often some one of your users, you know, clicks on a link in email or is browsing around somewhere right. they shouldn't be and and does something. I mean, it's, I, and here I'm not blaming the user. I'm just saying that we're requiring too much from our users. We're, we're requiring an, an unreasonable amount of, of discipline because the architecture, the fundamental structure of these systems started out with no concern for security and then it just became an arms race, you know, the bad guys versus the good guys where we're where we are fundamentally disadvantaged because the to be to be secure we have to be perfect. And there are there's just too many opportunities to make a mistake. We only have to make one mistake out of a bazillion and that creates an opportunity.
0: So you're you're saying it's essentially it always gonna be a lopsided battle. There is no way to achieve ultimate victory. And not, as long not as there's current architecture. And as long as there's incentive for the bad guys to crack, they're going to
1: crack and eventually succeed. Oh, and incentives only growing over time. Oh, absolutely. As, That's what we've seen know, change, really, is this yes. massive
0: incentive to,
1: to do it. Yes. Now mom and dad are doing their banking online because the bank don't want to have tellers staffed behind the windows. And I mean we saw we saw the tremendous success of ATMs demonstrated. That even the customers don't want to deal with the tellers. They just want their banking transactions done. So it's arguably a win-win unless you get bad software in your machine that watches you log on. And even on the fly, in, in seconds, software is now able to recognize what bank you're on, what protocol you're on intercept that, grab your credentials and move your money somewhere else. And then in the page that is rest- is, is returned to you, show you that your balance is still what you think it is, Ugh. even though the page would have come back showing zero. Yeah, And this is happening to people and it's just wrong. But I just, you know, here we are. We, we look at this week after week after week and talk about it and, and, you know, nothing has changed. When you proposed the podcast to me, you know, five years ago in in Vancouver, I thought, well, I don't know if we have enough to talk about Aha!
0: Little did we know. <laughs> and it's only going to get worse. Now, you're not the first person to propose an Internet reboot. Uh, in fact, I know at Stanford there's a working group working on the next generation Internet. And, and and really, they're thinking we start from scratch. Well, it's not the internet, Leo. It's our machines. Well, it's protocols. It's everything, isn't it? Yeah, it's everything, it's, it's and that's none, why it'll never happen because there's too much legacy, and well, we can't break yeah. everything. You just cannot break, and and there's no way to do this gradually. I, mean, I guess there is. I don't well,
1: know. we've been we've been we. It's no one. I don't see anyone who did t- who took a timeout, which is why I think maybe Microsoft, somewhere in some corner, certainly they must mean, you know, they're the one we keep blaming for all the problems. They're scurrying around, you know, getting the blame for the defects that are arguably theirs, except I defend them saying, Yes, but I understand how hard this is. So maybe somewhere they've got some secret weapon project where you no, know, they're they're trying to figure out how not to break compatibility with everything we've done, yet fundamentally change the way these systems work so that we don't have this weakest link principle. If, if as long as as long as there's a chain of interdependent things that all have to be perfect, such that one problem breaks everything, we're we're screwed, frankly. <laughs> There's no, it's other, true. there's no other way to put it.
0: So if you Google Find G-E-N-I, the word Find, F-I-N-D, which is uh, an acronym for Future Internet Network Design, and "genie," which is an acronym for Global Environment for Networking Innovations, this is a four-year project, which is, by the way, only is three out of the four years have been completed, uh, funding the BB, BBN, the folks who invented the Internet, to create... Um, a clean slate approach to the Internet's underlying architecture. However, <laughs> we haven't heard a thing about it since it was started in 2007, so I'm not, I'm not sanguine that there's, there's any progress being made. Well,
1: and the Internet is part of the problem. But well, it really says not- a
0: new Internet could ultimately mean replacing networking equipment and rewriting software on computers at a cost of billions of dollars um and I, I just don't think it's going to happen but the but uh clean slate advocates say current piecemeal efforts to address security and other problems only create inefficiencies and open the network to as you just said more risk so we yeah. do have to do something but i don't know if we i don't know if we can okay right. i just had to get that off my chest good for you <laughs> uh, no you know i've been thinking along the same lines lately i I, I'm starting to wonder if we're not facing a, a global meltdown, frankly, of our IT infrastructure because the bad guys seem to be winning.
1: Well, it is full employment guarantee for anybody in the security field. Oh, I mean, I it's a, but it shouldn't be. It's just it's so much, so much resource goes into this, and it's frustrating that the bad guys are able to have so much fun at our expense. But they are. Um, I did have um, at. I always try to find a different take on, on rights helping people. And so when I saw the subject line, "Spinright helps destroy data, I thought, uh, what? And it said, friends, this is actually a good thing. Um, a listener of ours, Nate Woods, said, Hi, Steve and Leo. I've been listening to your Security Now podcast for a little over four months now. Oh, Nate, you got some back back Four listening. months. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, <laughs> we got four years behind that one. Uh, anyway, he says, and I am really enjoying the computers' for basic principles series. I recently purchased Spinrite for maintenance on the drives in my ready NAS NV Plus,
0: and I found- used that. That's
1: a great. Oh, uh, that's a cool. great NAS, yeah. And found a different use for it as well. My brother recently dropped off an old computer he was getting rid of. He said, if I didn't want it to make sure that the drive was cleaned and then get rid of it. I had no need for it. So you used a boot nuke to attempt to write ones and zeros to the drive. That's Derek boot and nuke, which is a, a neat little program, um, uh, which you're able to, to boot and uh, just does a, a uh, various types of you know, drive wiping. He said, then write only zeros to the whole drive. But the drive had bad sectors preventing boot nuke from even running. So I set Spinrite on level five and then ran boot nuke again, which, after using Spinrite to clean up the drive's low-level sector problems, ran perfectly. It turned out all bad sectors were near the very beginning of the drive where the OS and most programs were. I wasn't sure if anyone had ever used your program to help destroy data before, and I thought you'd be interested. Thanks for all you do for both. Thanks for all both of you do. It says Nate Woods, Streamwood, Illinois. Had you ever heard of such a thing? No, but well, something similar was done. We saw a lot of Spinrite when people were wanting to upgrade their FAT16 to FAT32 because um, remember that Microsoft, this was probably what, 98 at some point, or Windows 95, Windows ninety somewhere, they were so microsoft was trying to migrate people from um from fat thirty or fat sixteen to fat thirty two or people wanting to migrate themselves to get smaller uh, cluster sizes to be able to to run on larger drives and so forth and microsoft 's own uh converting ut- uh, utility would not function if there were any bad sectors on the drive it would just stop and just say, sorry cannot convert you and so the news spread around the they uh pc community that oh get a copy spin right run it on the drive to fix your sectors then you can run microsoft converter to convert your drives fat 13 to fat 32 so that's sort of similar to this
0: hey we're going to get to hardware interrupts in just a second steve but i want to interrupt this show briefly for a word from carbonite oh i know there are people going oh i I haven't backed up I forgot. That's what I love about Carbonite. Carbonite's automatic backup. All you have to do is go to Carbonite.com right now and use the offer code. Uh, Let me just check. Yeah, TWIT, T-W-I-T. Carbonite.com, offer code TWIT. And just try it. Two weeks, no credit card needed. Immediately, Carbonite looks at your hard drive, starts backing up that stuff that you cannot afford to lose. Your financial documents, your emails, your photos, your music. The stuff you created. Look, your hard drive, if you've learned anything from Steve, you know, your hard drive will fail. 13% of hard drives fail in their first year. 43% – this is a stat. Oh, man, from Harris Interactive. 43% of people lose files they consider irreplaceable every year. 600,000 laptops are stolen or lost at U.S. airports alone every year. 600,000. And only 3% ever recovered. You're going to lose data if you do not back up. And the best way to back up is off-site automatically carbonite i'm just you got to try it go to carbonite.com use the offer code twit backup for free for two weeks if you decide to buy after that you get two months free and the good news is carbonite's unlimited backup everything inside your computer all your personal files inside your computer for less than five bucks a month it's just peace of mind how much is peace of mind worth you can get your data back anytime by going online from your iphone from any computer restoration is instant it's even a great way to move to a new computer. Back up the stuff with Carbonite on the old computer, transfer the Carbonite account to the new computer, restore, you're done. Carbonite, C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E, carbonite.com slash, actually, uh, coupon code TWIT. Try it free right now. Uh, it's it's absolutely essential. Carbonite.com. All right, we're talking with Steve Gibson, the security guru, the head of the head of the honcho at grc.com, and... We're going to continue on in um, Steve's series on building, kind of building a computer up from scratch by
1: by solving kind of the fundamental problems that you have to solve to make a computer work. Yeah, I don't, you know, that famous uh, cartoon with a professor on the blackboard who's trying to balance his equation and, and gets to a certain point and he, you know, can't figure out how to make it go. And he says, and then a miracle happens. <laughs> and... We're and, not going
0: to have any miracles here.
1: Yes. I, I, I don't want at any point to just sort of wave my hands and say, oh, and just take my word for it. Or, oh, that's just, just kind of, you know, happens. There is nothing that requires we do that. We've got, you know, we've got intelligent listeners who are have been paying attention. Um, the fact is, m- mysterious as the inner guts of computers are, they're just not that complicated. I know it's by choice. It's where I live programming in assembly language because I like dealing with the truth. You know, with the actual raw capability of the machine, and and it's it's easy to sort of say, oh, that's just sort of beyond me. But the fact is, it's not beyond any of us. So this is the fourth in our series of of sort of laying down a foundation of understanding what the exact operation, the true functioning of the computers that we're all using now in our daily lives. In the first installment, we looked at the whole concept of having a, a programmable machine where we had just a block of memory that was addressable word by word, and something called a program counter, which counted through the steps of the program, advancing word by word. And that these words that were read were broken down into fields of bits where one group of bits was the so-called op code, the operation code, which instructed how the computer would interpret the rest of the bits In the word, which, for example, might have been an an, 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 another address in memory, telling, for example, the computer to add the contents of that memory address into an accumulator, or subtract them, or invert them, or rotate them, or a number of different things. Maybe send them out to a peripheral device, or 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 read something from a peripheral device into the accumulator. So you had I/O input output instructions, and that that's that's really. At that level, that's all that's going on. Then in the second installment, we introduce the notion of indirection where which is a very powerful concept, the concept of a pointer, where instead of the, the instruction directly specifying an address from which you did some transaction, the instruction specified an address which contained the address with which you did the transaction. In other words, it was a pointer to the actual target of the operation. A very powerful concept, which um, we then advanced to the next stage with our third installment, which was our discussion of having multiple registers and a stack. The multiple registers gave the programmer more flexibility. He wasn't spending all of his time loading and storing things to and from memory into with using a single accumulator. He if he had multiple accumulators, multiple registers, then it was possible to sort of have little temporary scratch pads. He could keep things in various registers as part of the algorithm he was doing. And then we introduced the notion of a stack, which was the focus of of the last um, episode in this series, as a Hugely important and hugely powerful concept, the idea being that this was sort of a a sequence-oriented storage concept, storage facility, where you could say, place a value on the stack and then place another value on the stack and then recover a value from the stack and recover the prior value from the stack. That I, the, the idea being that as long as you put things on a stack and remove them in the reverse order, you're able to not worry about the immediate history of the stack as long as you have some discipline about always popping, as is the jargon, popping something from the stack in the reverse order that you pushed some things on the stack, you were able to restore the contents um, that you had used the stack as a, as a temporary storage to contain. Well, that's an incredibly powerful idea because it allows us then, for example, to, to call to a subroutine, to, to jump to a subroutine to, to perform some work for us. And the subroutine knows... That it's going to use, for example, a certain number, a certain subset maybe of the registers that's in this computer hardware. But it knows that the, when we call the subroutine, we don't expect it to mess up the work we're doing. We just want some service from it. So it is able to use the stack to save the contents of the registers that it might be changing. And then just before it returns to us, it restores them. It pops them, pops these values off the stack back into the registers so that when it comes back to us, it's very much like nothing happened. I mean, we got a little work done, but if we were in the middle of doing things, then we were able to continue trusting that subroutine to clean up after itself. And that's sort of the key concept. So, So moving forward, we have a computer which is able to do work. You know, if we wrote some software, it could compute pi for, you know, as long as we allowed it to work on computing pi or do polynomials or, you know, do roots and cubes and, you know, sort of, you know, pure math computational stuff. Well, that's useful, except that computers really came into their own when they began interacting with the, with the physical world, you know, with so-called peripherals, we wanted them to interact with a teletype where we can type things in. Um, we want them to be able to interact with, with storage facilities where they're able to to not only store things in their main core memory, but sort of um, have a, more like an archival storage to magnetic tape or, or, or to disk drives. So that that comes back to this notion of input-output devices or, or input-output instructions where, where we're able to say... ...take the contents of an accumulator and send that out to a device. Well, in order to do that, since the computer can typically run vastly faster than the physical devices that it's using for input and output... ...it needs some way of pacing itself so that it's able to provide data to a device as the device is able to accept it and it's and it's and it's similarly going in the other direction it's able to to wait around for new data to arrive from a device if we take the case for example of of a keyboard somehow the computer needs to know when we press a key and and then to read the value of the key we pressed and accept it store it somewhere and then some be notified when we press another key. Well, the original computers did this in a very awkward way, but it was all that they really had. There was an instruction, part of the input-output instructions, which would allow them to sense the readiness of a device to receive data or the availability of data from a device. And so the computer would essentially... It would execute an instruction to read this, say that it was trying to read data from the keyboard. It would execute an instruction which would allow it to sense whether new data was available. And if so, it would branch in the program to a series of instructions that would read the data and then reset that little sensor so that it could it could then start waiting for the sensor to again say, oh, we've got new data available, in which case it would read that and reset the sensor and so forth. So, essentially, the computer would loop, like in a, in a, in a tight little loop, just reading the status, checking to see if, it's, if that status said there was new data available, and if not, it would go back and read it again. Now, the problem is, The computer is completely occupied while that's happening. That is, while it's reading data, waiting for us to press keys one after the other, it can't get anything else done because it's spending all of its time sitting there just waiting for data to become available. So some early programmers said, well, you know, we could get some work done if we sort of like went away and did some work and then check to see if data was available, and if not, go back to kind of to what we were doing again. And so the idea would be they they would take responsibility for for polling the status of the keyboard every so often. Now that was clever, and it would work in theory, but it required a great deal of discipline from the from the programmers who were wanting to get sort of work done on the side while while being ready to accept data from the outside because if they if they got too busy, for example, just doing computational work, then the computer would seem unresponsive to the user or maybe two keys would get pressed one after the other and the computer would have missed the first one it would only see the second one when it came back if it didn't come back often enough. So it had so people writing code like that, had to make sure that they didn't spend, that they never, didn't ever spend too much time not checking to see if something new was available. So the programmers complained to the hardware guys and said, okay, look, this is crazy. We can write code to keep things moving, but it's really hard to do that. There's got to be a better way. What was invented Was the concept of a hardware interrupt, which is an incredibly powerful and, and as always, when I, when I start talking about incredibly powerful, you know, that what's going to follow is and dangerous, you know, I mean, with power comes responsibility. Like we were talking to uh, four weeks ago when we talked about pointers and I said, pointers are incredibly powerful, but oh boy, can they be trouble if you're not very careful with them. Similarly, Hardware interrupts are very powerful, but I would be, I would not be surprised to learn that, for example, Toyota has had a problem with that kind of power because it's the way computers become asynchronous. If if you didn't have any interruption, if all you were doing was running code like, Computing Pi, then the computer is entirely, what the computer does is entirely deterministic. You start it in the morning and it starts working on Pi. And eight hours later, if you were to stop it, then it's done a certain amount of work. If the next morning you started at the same time. If you checked on it in exactly the same length of time later in the second day, it is doing exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same place. It's been every single thing would have been predetermined based on its and based on its starting state. The entire future was determined by the way it started because in if with simple software, it's entirely deterministic. Well, that immediately goes out the window. As soon as you start interacting with the real world, what hardware interrupts allow is they allow a, a, an electrical signal of some sort, an electrical signal representing some sort of physical event like a key being pressed on the keyboard to, to interrupt at any time the normal flow of instructions. So now with a hardware interrupt system in this computer that we were just talking about, the the main code, the main work that's being done never has to check to see if a character is available on the keyboard. It doesn't have to explicitly check. Instead, before it gets busy doing whatever it's going to do, It sets things up so that hardware, a hardware event that occurs can interrupt it anywhere it is, literally in between instructions. So what the hardware in the computer does is as it's stepping its program counter word by word through memory, reading each instruction in turn and doing that. Some additional logic is added to the hardware, which just just as it's finished executing an instruction, there's a, a hardware check to see if the interrupt signal is active. If not, it just proceeds as it normally would have, to read the next instruction in turn and execute that. And again, after that instruction, it... it, it it takes no time to do this in hardware so there's no there's no overhead in testing this hardware interrupt line between every instruction it just it happens at light speed in the logic it either the computer either moves forward or if the hardware interrupt is is active it's it suspends, essentially doesn't execute the next instruction it would have in sequence. Instead, it does something different. Now, what it does in detail is a function of sort of the generation of the hardware. For example, the PDP-8, my favorite machine to use as sort of an example of in the beginning, did have hardware interrupts. And in fact, I used them in in the programs I wrote... Um, for you know, blinking the lights and, and playing games and things. Um, what what the PDP eight did was when a when a hardware interrupt occurred, where wherever it was executing in main memory, it forced the the that next the the, the location of that next instruction it would have executed to instead be stored in location zero in main memory. And it changed the program counter to a 1. So what that did was suddenly the instruction at program location 1 got executed and the computer followed the trail from there with the, the exact location where it had been interrupted stored in, in memory location 0. Of course, that allowed storing in in zero allowed the computer to get back to, to return eventually to exactly where it was. So so this was a huge innovation. Suddenly, you you could set things up so that, for example, when a key is pressed, no matter what you're doing at the time, suddenly you are where you were, gets stored in location zero, and you start executing at location one. And the the formal name for that location one is an interrupt service routine or an ISR as it's abbreviated. Interrupt service routine, meaning that that routine, that code is is going to service this interruption that the computer has just experienced. So what does it have to do? Well, we have no idea now where we were. We don't know what we were doing when we got interrupted. So now what we've introduced is non-deterministic computing where where real-time events occurring at any time change the flow of code through the computer. Well, if we want to, for example, read the data from a keyboard and store it in a buffer somewhere, we have to make sure that almost like a physician that, that that promises to do no harm. We have to make sure we don't change anything. That is, the computer was in the middle of work of some kind, but now we've got to use the computer's own resources to read the keyboard and figure out where we were in the buffer and store what we read in the next byte of the buffer. And, and so we, but we, then we need to return to what we were doing when we were so rudely interrupted with but leave the machine in exactly the same condition as we found it so this is where the stack brilliantly comes in because remember it's this beautiful sort of flexible scratch pad which as long as we pull things back from it in the reverse order we stored them we get them all back and and what's cool is that the program we interrupt can be using the stack too we just need to make sure we put everything back the way it was. So our interrupt service routine knows that it's going to use some of the registers in the computer which were probably in use when it got when this interrupt service routine got invoked. So it pushes the values stored in those registers onto the stack in a certain careful sequence and says okay I've I've saved things then it reads the data from the keyboard, figures out where it needs to store it in the, in, in the buffer, does so, and then it needs to clean up after itself. So, what what is to say is it needs to restore the state of the machine to exactly what it was when it got uh, interrupted. Now, now Jimmy does, has an
0: interesting question in the chat room. Uh-huh. Uh, is this recursive? In other words, if what happens when you interrupt and
1: interrupt? Ah, well, that's a very good point. Now, in um, in this pDP8 model, there is a problem which is that when the interrupt occurred, the the remember where we were got stored in location zero. So imagine that while we were doing this work in this interrupt service routine, another interrupt were to occur well what would happen is where we were would get stored in location zero. And we'd start executing at location one, like we said. Well, that's horrifying because we we had already stored in location zero where we were when the first interrupt occurred. Now another one has happened while we were still in our interrupt service routine, which wiped out the record of the first one. Well, Naturally, there was a way. There are several mechanisms that, that that come into play here. The first is that the hardware disables interrupts as part of its servicing of the interrupt. So the even even in the very earliest machine, like the PDP eight, they understood that there was a, there was a danger with the way, with the architecture that they had. So the act of the computer. Doing this interruption, storing where it was at location zero, and then executing from location one. The act of it doing that disables further interrupts. So what, what what that does is it prevents exactly the problem that I just stated of an interrupt occurring while we're still in the process of servicing an existing interrupt. So that prevents this, there being a problem with recursion. Now what what happened as we moved forward in architectures is things naturally got more complicated. It was recognized for example that there were some peripherals that were high speed like a tape drive or a disk drive which which were generating data or or requiring data at a much greater rate than, for example, a, a teletype or or a keyboard, and so the notion of priorities of interrupt interrupt priority came into being, where where a a interrupt would be serviced only if the the interrupt. If any interrupt was in the process of being serviced, if the new interrupt coming in was a higher priority than the interrupt that we were in the middle of working on. So what—that that's confusing unless you listen to it a few times. But what that meant was that you could have a a low priority interrupt assigned to the keyboard and a higher priority interrupt assigned to the disk drive or, or the tape. And by agreement of the architecture and the programmers, a higher priority interrupt could interrupt the work being done by a lower priority interrupt. And that required a, more, a fancier architecture. For example, rather than having just a single location like location zero, you might have a block of locations... You know, call it 100, 101, 102, 103, 104, 105. That is a location for each priority of interrupt. So so that would allow, that, that meant that different priorities of interrupts stored their interrupted data in different locations to prevent a collision. So again, mechanisms were created that that, that allowed that. But the concept here, the main concept is that we've, we've gone from a a system where where the starting state determines the entire future of the of of the computer which would be the case for example of us computing pi where we're just following instructions one after the other ad infinitum to a very different system where we're we're now able to respond in in essentially in real time to physical events happening in the real world and thanks to this ability for the 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 flow of our instructions to be interrupted at any time suddenly other code completely unrelated perhaps to what we were doing is being executed it that other code it promises that when it's done it will put the machine exactly back to the way it was then it returns because the because the location where we were has been stored in memory it treats that like an indirect pointer remember so it's not the location but the contents of the location so it does for example an indirect jump through location 0 where the location that we were executing has been stored which actually takes us back to where we were the program that was running has no idea that that all just happened. if it were really fancy, it could sense that time had been lost and in fact that 's the way some of the anti hacking technology that has existed, like anti copy protection um, or or you know c- copy defeating or anti debugging because things like debuggers will be will be breaking the normal flow of execution. Time is lost, and so it's technically possible for that software to sense that. Wait a minute! Some time has been lost between this instruction and the next one. Um, but in terms of its of its of sort of the, its own sense of the machine and the contents of the registers and what's going on, it would have no knowledge that that what had just gone on had happened. It was it was completely separate from it. Um, it could look around the computer and see evidence of things. For example, it might be keeping an eye on the buffer, which is being filled. The fact that it's being filled is sort of magical to it. It every so often, it looks at the at the at the input buffer and it sees characters. New characters are appearing, and there's like a buffer pointer that says here's here's how full the buffer is, and that's changing magically, sort of by itself. It's actually being done by an interrupt service routine reading those that those characters from the keyboard but that 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 activity no longer needs to be monitored that closely the actual main program just kind of keep an eye on it lazily and decide if it you know if there's enough characters yet for it to like get them all at once and go maybe move them somewhere else or do whatever it's doing so it's a an incredibly powerful advance in the, the the technology of the way computers work, which has been responsible for, you know, taking us sort of to the next level of of allowing computers to interact with us in a very rich way.
0: It's amazing how this all pieces together.
1: Yeah, and not that tough. No, I mean, it's not at all. You know, yeah. if I mean if our listeners listen carefully, they now understand what hardware interrupts are. Right. And it's, you know, it's sort of like, duh, I mean, that's how, that's how they ought to work. And that's how they do. That's all there is to it. Well, I think the thing I like about this series
0: is that it just, it's almost that it has to be this way. It's like, well, this, these are the problems you have to solve. And one by one, you solve the problems and it just kind of inevitably almost is this way. I guess there are other ways you could solve it, but this is such an easy, straightforward, logical way to do it.
1: It's like there's a certain inevitability to as I guess what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Right. I it, I think it follows logically. One one concept follows logically from the next. I mean, right. some of these innovations were brilliant. The notion of a stack, the idea that you could you could have a stack pointer which you where, you know, you'd sort of give it a region of memory for it to worry about and you could just kind of give it things and then if as long as you took them back in the reverse order, it would it would remove them from the stack in the reverse order that they it had pushed them on the stack, creating this Incredibly flexible facility for having like temporary storage in in the computer I mean that was it that was a brilliant oh, I addition it. I love the stack I yeah just love it <laughs> um I did mention that I would talk a little bit about um Windows well, yeah. when we were talking about applications freezing right the um, uh, the message event or the event key yeah the yeah. the message loop it's Ooh, called right. one of the first things a a Windows programmer learns. And this may be less true now than it was. Things like Visual Basic and some of the more recent languages sort of obscure the reality of what's going on inside of Windows. But the original concept with Windows was that programs would would that, that that Windows itself, the Windows environment, before it was even an operating system, when it ran on top of DOS, it would. Hand programs tokens that were called messages. It would hand the messages, which was just a a, a value, a um, um, a, a value from you know zero to something, which represented an event, and so it was also called the event loop, um, sometimes or the message, um, the the message loop, and the idea was that the the code that the programmer, a Windows programmer would write, would ask Windows for the next event. And in doing so, it was turning control back to Windows. That is, it would say, give me the next event. Well, if there wasn't a next event that affected that window, then the the software would just sort of wait. It would wait for another event to occur. And that was how... You could have multiple windows on the, on the screen that sort of seemed to all be alive at once, all active at once. That is, you could grab it and move it, or you could type in one. You, you could do different things. In fact, only one was receiving these Windows events. And so and as, as the application processed these events, you know, displaying text or moving the window around or resizing itself, whatever the event told it to do, the window was animated. Well, one of the things that could happen is some applications take time to do something. Maybe they're copying a file to the hard drive or they're they're you know, doing some encryption, for example, some some serious number crunching that's going to take many seconds. Well, if the if if a if a Windows programmer didn't really understand the way to program Windows, they might, upon receiving a like a a um, an, an event saying do the work from a, a button because buttons when you press buttons or, or or you select menu items those just generate messages everything in windows is a message so the programmer might just go off and do that work like start doing some big encryption project the problem is while he's doing that he's no longer asking window for windows for any new messages so when windows sends a message saying hey someone's trying to drag you to a different location the window the, the that window won't move the because not because anything's broken not because anything's hung it's just just that the the programmer of that windows application didn't didn't consider that something else might still be going on while He's busy doing work. It's very much like this polling problem we just talked about, where if the program, if we didn't have interrupt system, and, and the program wasn't going and checking back often enough to see if a new character had been typed, it could miss some. So so the proper way to write a Windows application is with something called multiple threads. And in fact, the, our, the next topic we're going to cover in two weeks, after next week's Q&A, I call it the multiverse. Multi-core, multi-processing, multi-tasking, threading It's multi-everything. What, what is all of that multiness at at all the various levels that it can occur? We now have enough of an understanding of how computers function to tackle that. But the idea, briefly, of multiple threads... Which we're going to cover in detail in two weeks is that it's possible to sort of to sort of split off another execution ability from sort of within your program, so that you could still you sort of split it so that you could still be asking Windows for any new messages while at the same time you're you are inside the same program. You're able to be doing the math or the, the long time-consuming copy operation or whatever it was you were doing. And if programs are written that way, then they do not freeze when they're just busy doing something. If you, if you don't write your program that way, even though there's nothing wrong with a program, it freezes. And people are so used to programs not freezing that is staying responsive to the user interface that they immediately think something's broken, and in fact, this was such a problem that that Microsoft added technology to sense whether a program was not responding to its message loop, and that's where we've seen. I don't know when it, when it popped in, like maybe it was Windows ninety eight, where Windows itself will put up not responding in in the message bar. I mean, in in the in the um, in the uh, bar at the top of the uh, window as if we didn't know that it wasn't responding. It's like, yes, we know it's not responding because we're, you know, we're clicking on buttons and nothing's happening again. Nothing necessarily is broken. It's just that the the, the program wasn't written with enough flexibility in mind. Very interesting stuff.
0: It is, it's very helpful to understand the underlying principles so that when your programs go south, <laughs> you know what's going on. Exactly. It's not a mystery. And again, there are reasons for all of this. Mm -hmm. Steve is the greatest. You can find more of Steve Gibson. In fact, 241 episodes of Security Now at GRC.com, including 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired and full transcripts for those who like to read along as they listen. GRC.com. We have uh, the uh, shows also at twit.tv slash sn. And then in the next few weeks, probably next week, video of this show will be available on iTunes and on YouTube as well. Oh, yay. Cool. Yeah. We're slowly, What we're doing about a show a week. We don't want to overload the system. But uh, we well, were you s- have to have meetings, you know, Leo. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Before the show began, Steve and I I was talking, because Steve has always said, uh, you know, he regretted getting uh, his company so big. How many, at the
1: most, how many employees did you have? We had 23. No Oh, man. And that was about, uh, that was about 20 too many.
0: And I, yeah. And, well, that's we how many you've to.
1: got now is three. <laughs> yep.
0: right sized. I, uh, I remember one of the pieces of advice you gave me when I was first starting the business is, uh, don't get too big and don't have too many meetings.
1: <laughs> yeah. I once, I once discovered years later, a, a Grandview outline. Remember Grandview? That mm-hmm. was a really good yeah, outliner. Yeah. Um, I, and it was an outline that I had written, um, for a meeting that we had about our meetings. And I thought, my God, even our meetings were having meetings. That's bad.
0: So, yeah. That's bad. Yeah. You have to have meetings as you get employees because it's the only to way you don't You got to do it. But um, yep. it does, it's a time sink. Yeah. And I'd rather be on the air. We'd we just, rather have you on the air. Well, it's just like you. You'd rather be programming.
1: I doing would. what you do best.
0: <laughs> I really would. But it's, so it's hard to have, but, but at the same time, if you want to have, Uh, control of what you do you have to have a business you have to run your own business this is difficult yeah i need interrupts and polling (laughs) instead of meetings actually that's what i get you watch what as soon as we wrap this show up i'll be interrupted (laughs) and i'll put them on the stack steve gibson is at grc.com don't forget too that's where the Spinrite program is the everybody's favorite hard drive maintenance and recovery utility somebody just asked in the chat room, what happens if the power goes out as it did for him when Spinrite's running is that is that bad
1: SpinRite does everything it can about about making sure that it's uh, is able to be safe and survive through a power outage. It's been tested through for, for back when SpinRite was being reviewed actively by reviewers, they'd pull the plug out several times and plug it back in. They go, Hey, nothing broke. It all works. Like, yep, I spent a lot of time making it be safe. Yep. So there you go. GRC.com.
0: Also, don't forget there's that great DNS benchmark. There's WISMO. There's so many great free programs there, too. GRC.com. Steve, we will see you uh, next week. We'll have a Q&A episode. If you've got questions you'd like to ask Steve, if this has raised any questions in your mind or any security questions, go to GRC.com slash feedback. There's a form there for you to ask your question, and maybe we'll use your question next week.
1: Okay, my friend. I'll talk to you then.
0: Thank you, Steve. Bye-bye.
1: Security now.